Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the hosts on the Intellectual History Channel. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Joseph Turigian, Assistant Professor in the School of International Service at American University in Washington, DC. Professor Turigian focuses on the study of the politics of authoritarian regimes with a specific focus on elite power struggles, civil military relations, and grand strategy. His research agenda draws upon comparative politics, international relations, security studies, and history to ask broad and relevant questions about the long-term political trajectories of both China and Russia. Today, we're going to discuss the professor's first book, Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union in China After Stalin and Mao published this year by Yale University Press. Both listeners who grew up in the Cold War with a Cold War imprint and or experiencing today's retro version should have a significant interest in the new book and what it can add to the understanding about politics in authoritarian regimes. Professor Terigian, Joseph, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your research. Thanks so much for having me. Joseph, good to finally talk to you. Uh, Let me start by asking you to share a bit about how you came to study political science, the Chinese and Russian languages, and the impetus behind your new book. So I went to the University of Michigan as an undergrad where I studied Chinese and Russian. And when I started my PhD at MIT, I thought that I was going to end up doing a very typical international relations theory dissertation. But two things happened. One is I took a class with Roderick McFarquhar at Harvard. And what was so wonderful about this particular course was that each week we read a different book in Chinese by a Chinese author about some key event in the PRC's history since 1949. And I was always struck by Professor McFarquhar, not only just because he was a real uh, gentleman scholar and took a lot of time to talk to and, and learn from his students, but he just seemed to always have one of the best takes, whether he was interacting with a journalist or a historian or a political scientist uh, or whatever. And I got the sense that his command of history just gave him a really good intuitive sense for how things worked. The other th- thing that happened was I got to know a literature that I wasn't aware of before I started, maybe shamefully, uh, in my PhD program, which was uh, historical institutionalism, which was a qualitative corner of political science that thinks uh, conceptually uh, and rigorously about politics, uh, but also really takes time to look at empirics and history. So it was grounded uh, in evidence in a way uh, that I I found very interesting. So what I thought would be meaningful to do would would be to take this rich knowledge that McFarger had and combine it with this particular way of thinking about doing political science and see whether or not I could, I could do uh, something special there. And this was happening at a very 
sort of special moment in the in area studies for both China and Russia. So with China, there was really this explosion uh, of materials, uh, including primary sources, which which tends to surprise uh, some people. But also you could go to China and you could interview people and even uh, material that was published openly within the PRC, including these uh, party history journals in Beijing, were really sort of pushing the envelope in terms of what you could uh, learn uh, what you can learn about. And then for Russia, there's, uh, a, again, a sense that it's impossible to do research uh, because of how politicized history is in that country. But perhaps surprisingly, over the last few years, the, the Russian archives have really exploded in terms of the kinds of things that they've made available. So when I was looking at these kinds of material, what really struck me and surprised me was the distance between what we could do with this evidence and what people had been doing. And so I, I saw this sort of niche to sort of draw upon this deep, rigorous investigation into elite politics that people hadn't been doing, but still trying to be rigorous in political science in terms of talking about what those findings mean for how we should think about authoritarian politics more broadly. Well, you, you acknowledge many scholars uh, for their guidance and support on, on this book, on elite power. But I noted in particular uh, your gratitude for uh, Warren Sun and Frederick mm. uh, Tewis, uh, where, where you wrote, hey, they set the bar for the study oh, yeah. of elite politics in China and are my models. Can, can you share a bit about that? What, what sets them apart from, from others? Yeah, let me put it this way. They built the mountain and they put the flag on it. I mean, <laughs> in terms of just stunningly great research they really 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 deserve um, their reputation as uh, the bar for doing good research on elite politics in china and i was very very lucky this summer uh, i did a two-month fellowship at australian national university in canberra uh, and both warren sun and fred tevis are in australia and i can't tell you just how fun it is and meaningful it is that they're not just wonderful scholars, but that they take mentorship seriously. So, uh, for example, like if you go to uh, someone who is uh, an offensive realist uh, at a political science conference and you say, hey, I think you got your empirics wrong, uh, they might give you a funny look. Uh, but if you go to people like Warren Sun or Fred Tevis and Roderick McFarquhar, too, uh, you say, you know, I learned this new thing. They get really excited and they want to talk to you. And there's this sense that, you know, politics is uh, the study of politics is an iterative process. And it's normal to get things wrong because it's so hard to study these these types of regimes. So uh, for me to spend hours with Warren Sun and, uh, or Fred Tevis, and it's this conversation of, well, did you know about this source? How should we think about this source? Uh, what do you think it means and sort of playing with different interpretations of it. It's just such an, a sort of intellectually honest way of going about what is such a hard target that I find it really, really meaningful um, to do that kind of exercise with them. Well, wow, that's uh, great. Thanks for sharing that. Well, before we uh, move to your book about elite politics, um, focusing on leadership succession, let me ask you, as a political scientist, two uh, short answer questions about comparative power. One's about defining it and, and the other's about its source. And the only reason I am asking is just as kind of broader framing questions. And first, give, given your familiarity with both Chinese and Russian languages, and hence, in theory, the cultures, do, do you feel like there's a difference in 
how power is defined at the elite level in China and Russia. And secondly, what do you think is the source of power in Russian politics compared to Chinese politics? Well, certainly it's the case that we should be careful about what era of Chinese and Russian politics we're talking about when we're making comparisons. And we should also be careful about the political science comparative method uh, and what it can do or can't do. So when I wrote the book that we're discussing today, I thought it was meaningful to compare the power struggles after Stalin and Mao for several reasons, right? So this gets into these political science perennial questions about, you know, what kinds of comparisons are meaningful uh, and which are not, you know, are they actually really similar enough to be able to learn anything? Uh, and what exactly is the, the theoretical uh, literature with which you're engaging. It doesn't make sense when you're doing that kind of comparison. So as I, as I say in the book, it makes sense for for several reasons. The first is that these were, uh, you know, two of the great Leninist uh, regimes uh, of the Cold War of the 20th century. In both cases, those moments in time were used heavily by political scientists to theory uh, about the nature uh, of, of Leninist regimes. And so, for example, there's a lot of talk about whether Leninist regimes are resilient or not because of institutionalization uh, at the elite level. And very often it was this period in time that people look to um, to draw uh, those conclusions. And it certainly was the case that many people, even within the Soviet Union and China, after the deaths of Stalin and Mao, uh, when these lessons of strongman rule were at their strongest, had hoped for a sort of um, different approach uh, from the top leaders. And so what was so surprising then is that what the findings actually show is that this period that political scientists had been learning about and arguing about institutionalization based on their understanding of what had happened was actually a pretty fundamental misunderstanding of what had actually taken place. And so that was, uh, I think, the why I think, at least for my book, the, um, and, and those periods of time are meaningful in terms of comparison. The question I was uh, probably should have asked, which was about how you open the book and you start the book with two anecdotes illustrating the succession contestation in both China and the, and the former Soviet Union. And again, it's right after the death of Stalin in the 50s and same situation following the death of Mao in the 70s. And together they are, as you point out, enormously revealing of politics at the elite level, although the outcomes are quite different in terms mm. of succession. Can you set the context here for listeners in terms of your opening for the book? Yeah, so I start the book by talking about this dramatic showdown at a central committee meeting uh, in 1957. And what had happened was the majority of the presidium, which is what the Politburo was called at the time, had confronted Khrushchev about these increasingly dictatorial tendencies. And it looked to some people like his days were numbered, but what he was able to do was play for time, uh, rally the military to his support, and use these very compromising materials about his opponents from what they had done during the worst abuses of uh, the Stalin era and put them in the hands of an individual uh, Marshal Zhukov, who had this prestige and authority as someone who had helped the Soviet Union defeat the Nazis in, uh, in, in World War II. 
So here you see Zhukov use, uh, basically reciting from these documents to discredit the old revolutionaries uh, like Molotov and Kaganovich, who had been seen for years because of their association with Lenin, because of their contributions to uh, the early Bolshevik victory and, and regime building, was able to discredit them in a way that was really quite quite shocking uh, and also quite different from what had happened uh, in China. So in China, uh, of course, uh, the old guard were persecuted by Mao during uh, the Cultural Revolution, but they were able to reassert their authority uh, afterwards in a way that was very different from what had happened uh, in the USSR. And one of the reasons for that was this individual, Deng Xiaoping, was able to strongly, strongly uh, display uh, that it was the military that listened to him and no one else. And part of the reason for that was the status that Deng had gained as one of the key legendary military figures in the war uh, against uh, the KMT. He was the commander of the so-called uh, Huai Hai campaign that combined two entire field armies so Hua Guofeng, who I argue in the book, was what's much more popular for many reasons than was um, has been popularly assumed for many years. Uh, in in terms of this, you know, revolutionary cachet and Deng's very special relationship with the PLA in particular, uh, that was something that that Hua um, could not compete with. So the event that I start with in the book was this uh, rally where uh, Deng Xiaoping's picture uh, was shown and everybody started sort of um, cheering uh, very uh, emotionally and, and enthusiastically, even though Deng wasn't actually the head um, of the CCP at that time. It was only very slowly being rehabilitated after his last purge uh, by Mao shortly before Mao's death. Thanks for that. I, I didn't mention that your opening chapter is titled Theory. Uh, which in turn is uh, divided into six subsections, and which, um, among other things, I should say, uh, discusses uh, your hypotheses, uh, the role of institutions, your methodology, and then descriptions of the cases and their selection. Uh, as a kind of uh, inside baseball, or in this case, I guess, uh, inside methodology, uh, can you share how you decided to structure things from two models and three sets of hypotheses to the questions they're designed to help you answer. Was there any particular inspiration or influence uh, behind your approach? So I was reacting to certain methodological approaches that I didn't feel did full justice to the intricacies of historical moments. So it's very popular in political science to do uh, game theory or look for average causal effects, or when it comes to case studies to do this um, sort of two by two approach uh, where you have like um, four boxes um, with two variables where you have a um, certain number uh, of outcomes. Uh, and, and I felt that when you do case studies in that way, uh, very often you don't feel the need to really, really go in depth into the evidence, uh, which would be really, really necessary when you're looking at a small number of cases, because this this two by two approach is sort of predicated on the assumption that you're looking at across enough cases that you can sort of tease out patterns. But I think when you're looking at, at sort of small and, small and medium n, meaning a smaller medium number of case studies, really, if you're not getting the cases fully right, 
then you're not really, I think, getting at um, anything um, truly important. And then in terms of, of history, I deeply admire historians, but sometimes I don't think that they go quite far enough in being explicit about what exactly their findings say. So I was thinking to myself, you know, what would be you know, the most meaningful way to, to, to manage um, a project that could sort of avoid what I saw as, as some of the pitfalls uh, in those approaches, which are still absolutely you know, powerful, and uh, I commend people for doing them, but I was trying to figure out a way uh, to, to sort of hedge uh, my own strengths, which was this you know, really rigorous deep dive in, into these new empirics. And uh, what I thought would be useful to do is, was to say, look, well, you know, what are questions that we could ask that are answerable uh, and not banal? Uh, and that if you didn't look at the evidence, you wouldn't know, you know what the answer might not be. Uh, and then also be able to link how those questions are asked to broader theoretical questions about how authoritarian regimes work. So by doing that, you could be clear about what it is that you're asking, which would allow a sort of rigor to what you're doing, but have it not be you know, completely divorced from these broader questions of how we should think about how Leninist regimes work. Nice. Thanks again for going into um, some inside methodology there. You know, Paul Pearson, had had written a, a book, uh, and it's a, it's a bit dated, I have to admit, going back to 2004 about social theory called uh, Politics and Time. And the, he opens by sharing two books as examples of support for his argument about the temporal value of shifting from a snapshot to a moving picture of mm. important so social processes. Hey, Pearson's point was that uh, the two book examples drew on history less for narrative or historical compilation uh, and, and more so for grounding for theoretical claims about how things happen in the social world. I, am I off base here or, or do you feel like there's a connection with what you do in your own comparative work? No, that's a great question. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that I felt motivated to do the kind of research that I do was I learned about historical institutionalism uh, during my PhD program, and Paul Pearson is is part uh, of that school. And when I read his book, that was one of the moments where a light bulb went off, and I said, wow, this is really kind of interesting work to do because it's empirically grounded. Uh, it's looking very closely uh, at the evidence, but it's still conceptual. It's still rigorous. And the book itself shows how by looking to the past, we might not be able to tease out patterns in terms of, you know, if you see this constellation of variables, then we'll tend to see this kind of outcome. But what it might be able to do even more meaningfully is allow you to conceptualize mechanisms and structures such that when you look at other cases, things become uh, legible in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, but isn't sort of making you assume that you have like um, the exact sort of uh, inputs that will allow you to uh, guess either more often than not, you know, what a particular uh, outcome would be. So uh, for readers that are interested, I actually wrote an article uh, on the study of individual events that uh, they can look for, uh, where, I, where I go into a little bit more uh, on, on, on how I think about this. And then you will see that it was people like Paul Pearson and, and also this idea of uh, episode analysis, which other historical institutionalists uh, have written about um, that, that helped me get to the point where I got to. Great. And what I can do is I'll, I'll look that up and 
post the link and people will be able to um, to get to that paper. So it sounds good. Thanks for that. You mentioned, or I, I think in your acknowledgments, that Kathleen Thielen, Thielen. was was on. She was your, on my uh, uh, committee. Yeah, and I think she may have done some stuff with Pearson. That's correct. And I'll tell you one thing that really I thought was amazing about having um, Professor Thielen on my committee was that I thought that she would be a wonderful asset for making sure that I understood the theoretical and methodological elements. But she read it so closely, she was even challenging my uh, empirics a little bit and said, you know, this individual, Ye Jianning, he sounds really key to me. Uh, and she was absolutely right. So I, I'm very, very deeply impressed by not only her um, her theoretical approaches, but also her command of detail and, and also her mentorship. Wow, nice. And and you 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 say something about that in the book where uh, you make a reference to something she says that ha- has to do with whether they're really a player in the game or not. And yeah, I, and I, I also I, draw specifically upon her definition of institutions because institutions can mean you know a hundred different things. So uh, I, I also drew upon her work to be explicit about what exactly I was talking about when I talked about rules. Sure. Hey, you describe your book as a revisionist historical narrative contrary to popular theories, and and you've you've talked a bit about this. Can can you share the background context a bit more? Um, you contrast the institutional approach to one of power and coercion. How, how do you see these as being at odds in terms of their explanatory potential? Yeah. So. The general historiography looking at what happened in the Soviet Union and Stalin uh, and China after Mao uh, are sort of similar, right? First of all, there was this idea that there was a reassertion uh, of collective leadership, uh, but also that, and this is uh, quite surprising too, that the power struggles that ensued were about policy, right? So in the Soviet Union, you had the Stalinists versus the reformers, and then uh, in China, um, you allegedly had this figure, Hua Guofang, who was a sort of uh, neo-Maoist, light Maoist, uh, and that the selection uh, that ultimately led to the new leadership was based on those policy differences in a new, more institutionalized, inter-party uh, democracy type uh, process. But what the evidence shows is that it wasn't really about that. It was about what you did during uh, the revolution uh, or World War II, uh, what crimes you committed during the worst excesses of the Stalin uh, or Mao eras. So that's what I mean when I talk about prestige uh, and why, you know, compromising material in the hands of someone like Zhukov, which was this one-two punch of someone with his stature with that kind of damaging material that hurt sure. other people's stature was 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 was, was so crucial. Um, but then how little like real policy differences mattered, which uh, I think is not really intuitive maybe for for a lot of people, including political scientists, but uh, uh, it didn't uh, matter in part because the policy differences weren't as strong uh, as we had thought, but but also they don't necessarily matter if if the game uh, is manipulation of rules and not you know conversations about um, the propriety of different policy platforms in a sort of structured environment. So, you know, for the for the for the Zhukov case, um, I mean, the, the presidium voted against Khrushchev. There was a majority, and, uh, but it was the Central Committee that ended up being decisive, right? And so uh, that had um, implications in 1976 in China, where there was a debate about how to how to manage the Gang of Four. And they said, well, what we definitely don't want to happen is what happened in the Soviet Union in 1957. In fact, they were very explicit about this. 
you know, we need to arrest them and isolate them so they can't rally their own supporters. So this is about fait accompli's manipulation of ambiguous rules, not so much a, you know, a structured discussion of, uh, of different agendas. Uh, thanks for that. You've touched on some of this already, but in terms of your book's thesis, uh, Challenging Historiographical Consensus, and we'll talk a bit more about that, um, you note that neither Khrushchev nor Deng had any interest in sharing power. Uh, can you unpack for listeners how your thesis parts company with contemporary accounts in, in this matter? Uh, what are, as you put it, the full implications of weak institutions and and why does it matter? Well, very often when you read an article about Xi Jinping, you will see a line in there somewhere about how he is reversing the legacies of Deng Xiaoping, who allegedly cared a lot about institutionalization. And I think that is a misunderstanding of what Deng was all about. And so Paul Pearson, who we mentioned earlier, argues that it's moments in time where you see contestation that the true contours of power become more visible, right? So you don't just want to look at individual moments in time, but boy, can you learn a lot, you know, by looking at, at, these, um, at, at these specific events. And so the last uh, empirical chapter in the book, which is about this contest between Hua Guofeng and Deng Xiaoping, shows that, uh, for example, this very famous speech that Deng Xiaoping gave uh, on August 18, 1980, uh, which for decades was seen as a meaningful programmatic statement about the need for collective leadership and avoiding the abuses of strongman rule, uh, was a misunderstanding of that document and that, in fact, it was intended primarily to provide a justification for uh, removing Fogelfang. Uh, we see that Deng uh, acted autocratically. We see that he didn't really uh, care that much about party rules unless uh, they were benefiting him. It showed the extent to which he saw his own power and power within the CCP more broadly as revolving around who had control uh, over the military. And then the final chapter that sort of wraps things up, I, I go a little bit into the 1980s and I list all of these examples of Dung acting without uh, any con meaningful constraints uh, against him and and how he was able to achieve basically whatever he wanted, in part by ignoring institutions. So, for example, this is another one of your revealing anecdotes. Chen Yun, who allegedly was this other very senior revolutionary uh, who could buck Deng uh, when he wanted to, uh, went up to Zhao Ziyang, a very prominent um, Chinese leader who was general secretary for a few years during the 1980s, and said, why don't we have any Politburo Standing Committee meetings? And uh, Zhao Ziyang said to him, I'm just a secretary. You need to go talk uh, to Deng about that. And then Chen wandered off muttering, just a secretary. And, you know, the reason they had those meetings is Deng didn't want to give Chen an opportunity to express his mind, right? So why is this important for how we think about uh, the world today? Well, it shows that the CCP has always been a very, very leader-friendly system, right? And that um, these continuities um, across time are actually quite powerful in that if um, Dung had been a George Washington, which is what another sort of pro-reform liberal leader had explicitly said he hoped Dung would be in terms of creating these institutions, it might have been a different world. Um, but Dung had chosen not to do that, which, um, what, you know, whether he could have and how it would have worked is, is an open question. But uh, ultimately, he thought about the benefits of the CCP as, as having a core. Right. This idea that one individual uh, was where final decisions were made and everyone had to listen. 
Um, and he, for example, talked about how the Soviet Union could have a meeting and then invade Afghanistan. And he meant that in a good way to show their decisiveness. Uh, he would talk about when he's dealing with the United States, there were there were three governments, meaning divisions of powers. And he was like, you know, we're not like that. We don't need to be like that. And so um, he told Jiang Zemin, um, his successor, you know, when I was around, what I said goes and what I want is for when you were around, to, um, when you say something for it to, you know, be the final word. So it, it shows this, it sensitizes you to, you know, the kind of strengths that these leaders can draw upon that makes what Xi Jinping uh, has been doing a little bit less surprising. Uh, thanks for elaborating on that. And the institutionalization that you go into in the book is is actually uh, quite illuminating. And yet I realize you're downplaying it as as a major force uh, in terms of positioning your own uh, narrative. And I guess to, to kind of go at this a little more uh, linearly, your second chapter uh, is entitled uh, The Defeat of Beria, and your introductory subsection is Stalin's belated victory. Can you set the stage for this opening case in 1953 Moscow? Who is Lavrenti Beria and the important people around him? And how, how does highlighting this episode support your hypothesis concerning elite power struggles uh, for top leadership? So shortly before Stalin had died, he rearranged the leadership in a way that essentially pushed out most of the old Bolsheviks and empowered both a middle generation, which would have been people like Beria, Khrushchev and Malenkov, uh, but also gave new prominence to a younger generation, uh, which included people like Brezhnev. It looked like Stalin was planning on perhaps even liquidating um, some of uh, some of the old revolutionaries. But uh, when when Stalin died, what happened was this middle generation gave a sort of soft rehabilitation to the old revolutionaries, brought them into the inner circle, although not into the top leading positions, uh, and cast that younger generation um, sort of into oblivion. And, and you know, they would not really reassert their power uh, until 1964. Uh, I write about that in an article for Journal of Cold War Studies, which is a sort of sequel to the book, which I can encourage you or your readers um, to look at if, if they want to see what happened next uh, with Khrushchev. So, you know, what's interesting about Beria? Well, again, what, what's interesting here is how little policy mattered, right? So, for example, uh, for a long time, we thought that one of the reasons the other members of the leadership went against him was because of differences on uh, how to uh, approach East Germany. Um, but we now know that that was you know, really quite overstated and that the real issues here were fear of Beria's control over compromising material. Uh, and that ultimately, for them to be able to defeat him, they did not feel that they could risk sort of an open contest within the party elite where they would present their case and Beria would present his. So they felt a need to uh, basically um, detain him, uh, separate him from his ability to draw upon um, his special relationship with the political police and build a case against him. Uh, and people in the Central Committee were quite shocked because they had seen Beria getting along with other people in the elite so well. So Beria actually, you know, promised them dachas. He rehabilitated Molotov's wife, who had been persecuted by Stalin. He uh, went to people like Malenkov and, and Khrushchev and uh, asked for their opinions and tried to, you know, include them in a sort of triumvirate. So you see these really kind of amusing statements at the Central Committee plenum, where the top leadership tries to explain 
what happened. And they were saying things like, oh, the only reason Beria made popular policies was because he wanted to take over and be a dictator. Or the reason he was so nice to us was because he was, um, you know, plotting against us. Right. So here we see someone without real policy differences from other people who was actually, you know, um, courting them and trying to co-opt them essentially lose um this this power struggle which i which i think is really quite interesting and revealing about how politics and these types of regimes work it's a nice chapter after you um have set things up uh with your theory chapter and and i wanted to ask you what what you thought about uh the movie uh the death (laughs) of stalin (laughs) yeah you know it's funny you ask that because i'm not actually a big fan of historic historical fiction because i find myself always wondering well what actually really did happen and wondering, sure. you know, how much I can learn about politics from from movie directors. Um, but I teach a class on China and Russia at the School of International Service at American University. Uh, and uh, I like to do a movie night to build, um, you know, uh, relationships uh, among me and the students and get to know each other a little bit. And what else were we going to watch, really, other than The Death of Stalin? So I finally watched <laughs> it. And as I was sitting there uh, with my students, I had a little notebook to write down um you know, what I thought uh, was right and what I thought was wrong. And I found myself, you know, of course, noting a lot of empirical things that were incorrect. But sort of thematically, uh, it did it did touch on a lot of themes uh, in the book. Right. So this I, mm. idea that policy differences didn't matter or, or they were or alleged policy differences were used cynically. You know, the importance of a compromising material. Uh, the role of the political police and the military and institution, and, you know, in environments where institutions uh, aren't strong and can't guarantee that they won't, you know, play a sudden and prominent role. Uh, I, I enjoyed it uh, more than I thought, even though naturally <laughs> I might have had one or two quibbles. Sure, right. No, I figured you'd probably have some quibbles, as as you say. Well, well, the next uh, Russian case is Chapter Three, and you titled it uh, the Anti-Party Group. It covers the period 1955 to uh, 57 and centers on the attempt to remove Nikita Khrushchev from power. Um, who or what uh, is the anti-party group? You, you open that chapter with an interesting anecdote uh, concerning a letter the departing U.S. ambassador wrote to a close friend about the Khrushchev incident in which he concluded collective leadership was indeed a reality and not yeah. a fiction. Yeah. You know, it's funny, actually. This is actually my favorite chapter in the book, although I think I'm the only one that that feels that way. And so this document to which you're referring for someone like me is really quite fun, right? Because you have to make the case that what you're saying is new and unintuitive. So here is this document Mm -hmm. that I found uh, in the U.S. archives written by a prominent uh, American diplomat who, looking from the outside, basically completely got it wrong, right? And basically what he said was, you know, this is a case of collective leadership emerging triumphant and that, you know, ultimately when there are policy differences, it's impossible to control them and they erupt and then there is a a new equilibrium. And he was really wrong on on both counts. Right. So what had happened was here we have Khrushchev acting increasingly as a dictator. Right. And humiliating other people on the presidium, not listening to them, ignoring them. And so what they were trying to do was restore, essentially, some form of collegial approach on the presidium. And Khrushchev uh, came out on top by breaking every rule that everybody thought had governed um, the CPSU uh, up until that particular time. Right. 
So the fact that they confronted him in that particular way, as opposed to just saying, you know, we need you to tone it down, showed that collective leadership wasn't really quite working. And they probably wouldn't have done anything at all if they hadn't felt that Khrushchev was coming for them first, right? So this was a situation where they felt like they needed to move because Khrushchev was going to push them out. So this was this was not a story of functioning collective leadership. But also what's so interesting is that it wasn't a story of policy differences either, right? So, uh, you know, there had been a lot of talk about this um, anti-party group being motivated by pro-Stalin, anti-reform, anti-Western policy agenda. Uh, but what we see and what's actually kind of sort of amusing is that uh, Khrushchev would take these sometimes tactical differences and either blow them up or completely mischaracterize them and use them as a weapon. Right. Uh, and we also see that there was actually a lot more consensus on the Stalin issue, especially by the time that the uh, anti-party group um, actually moved against Khrushchev. We saw that the, the, the members of this group um, were from multiple different generations and multiple different policy inclinations. So there was this sort of half-hearted attempts at the plenum that saw the defeat of the half-party group as to say that they were united by some common policy platform, and they denied it. And so Mikayan, who I quote, is saying like, well, they didn't quite have a platform, but it, it smelled like a platform, which is kind of you know, a lame statement of you know trying to assert that there were um, you know real more fundamental differences um, than there actually were. Sounds like something from the movie. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's interesting uh, that that is your uh, favorite chapter. The first of your China cases uh, involves the infamous Gang of Four. Uh, interesting juxtaposition given, given I should say the anti-party group moniker and its revolutionary uh, prestige. The, the so-called Gang of Four really have little prestige, mm. although, right, they, they have for a time the cloak of supreme connection in the, in the form of Mao. It, it also, I think, is an interesting chapter. And, and the introduction of your comparative case, uh, China, can, can you share with us the story of the four gang members and how their political trajectory is really tied to personal issues. It's ironic and fitting uh, given the chaos and how does it uh, fit into your larger thesis? So people had tended to think of the Gang of Four as a sort of caricature, right, of these individuals who uh, were very close-knit, working in uh, close uh, proximity to each other with a clear policy agenda, uh, a sort of worldview that was extremely leftist, extremely radical, uh, that they worked to move forward methodically and that they had an instinctual distaste and fundamental antagonism uh, to other people within the leadership. Now, the Gang of Four you know, are complicated. So uh, there were certainly leftist elements to what they were doing. They did uh, you know, work together in some areas and there was you know, broad distaste for them uh, within the elite because of how they were associated with the early excesses of the Cultural Revolution. But the new evidence we have about them really is is quite striking for several reasons, right? Uh, one is that, you know, how little they really had their own thinking about lots of key issues, how much of what they were doing was just based on what they thought Mao wanted them to do, the extent to which they actually tried to co-opt and reach out to uh, members of the uh, old revolutionary elite who were already being rehabilitated um, before Mao's death. So we have these really quite striking uh, speeches by Jiang Qing in 19, 
1976, where she's saying things that you wouldn't tend to associate with Jiang Qing, right? Where she's basically doing a self-criticism about, about what happened earlier during the Cultural Revolution, but also claiming she had always supposed um, the worst, uh, the worst abuses um, from during from during that time, and saying that you know the purge of of Deng, uh was was a special case, and that the other old revolutionaries would would be fine as as long as they were loyal to at least the idea of the Cultural Revolution. But what's also interesting too is, you know, the 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 real big problems for them were the fact that they hadn't really contributed a lot to the revolution before 1949, right? Their their main cachet was their close association with Mao, and what they had done earlier in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, but uh, you know, that was something that was a double-edged sword because a lot of people hated what had happened during the Cultural mm-hmm. Revolution. So, uh, for example, uh, Zhang Chunxiao said, you know, what authority do I have? What base camp was established by me? Which was a very revealing statement because it showed that, you know, the, the coin of the realm here was, you know, what were you doing um, when we were fighting the Japanese? What were you doing when we were fighting the KMT? And there were all of these pieces of compromising material and character assassination that was very, very quite damaging to them. But having said that, you know, uh, they were still quite popular um, in many corners of the party, which is why when Hua Guofeng was deliberating, you know, how to go about um, pushing them out, they didn't use the so-called meeting solution, which would have been to confront them at a Politburo Standing Committee meeting, because half of the Politburo Standing Committee were members of the Gang of Four. and uh, The numbers were better for Hua um, in the Politburo which was bigger, but they weren't sure what would happen in the Central Committee, right? And the danger would be that you would have something happen again, like what had happened in 1957, right? Where they would be able to sort of make their case in a way that might not allow them to ultimately emerge triumphant, but at the very least would be potentially very destabilizing at a moment where the party was already worried about its future because of because of Mao's death and what that might mean. Yeah, some of the things that um, you share with regard to... Uh... Uh, the trial against the gang, because you mentioned uh, Zhang, and, and and no evidence was actually found that she was personally responsible for, you know, directly ordering anyone to be persecuted or killed. And I was thinking back to the January 6th hearings here recently and, and how we're, we have our own version of trying to come to some grips of uh, who's responsible for what, where, and how. Well, this is one of the points that I, I tried to make, right, which was that to a very fundamental extent, the Gang of Four weren't pushing their own radical agenda so much as feeling that the game was about intuiting what Mao wanted and giving it to him, mm. right? Which means that if you're making a case for why a group like that should be arrested, it creates pretty obvious and fundamental challenges in terms of separating them from Mao. And there was a clear political decision that Mao would not be rejected, right? So you see this kind of thing where during the investigations, people came to see that a lot of the worst and you know most uh, potentially explosive actions were taken like people like Zhou Enlai. So there was this one sort of amusing anecdote about Peng Jun, who was you know playing a prominent role managing the trial, where he said that the Gang of Four were bad people doing bad things. Zhou Enlai was a good person making mistakes. And the reason for this double standard was the gang of four were sort of scapegoats who were targeted because of, you know, who they were and, um, for all the reasons we had been talking about. Whereas Zhou Enlai was someone who got a sort of special dispensation because of what she had done um, during the revolution and because of his stature within the party. 
and it's not like uh, the Gang of Four didn't um, initiate or have the dirty hands problem here in, in terms of uh, how you've described it. And, and you have that one really kind of chilling uh, line to end a paragraph about, and I forget what your source was there, and and we can talk a little bit about that, but I, and, and I wanted to say, I think you, your sourcing on this, uh, your job is not just writing the book, but it's also as a, your, your own translator. And, and so I, I really admire what, what, what you've accomplished here. But, but back to my point was that that chilling line about uh, the screaming, the neighbors not being able to put up with it after a while. Oh, um, so that was about how, um, where I'm talking about the extent to which compromising material was such a dangerous threat in this particular political environment. And that when you look at the actions taken by the gang of four that were sort of the most distasteful, I guess is one word for it, was how Mm -hmm. aggressively they went after people who presented a threat um, from that regard, which is what I believe that line is referring to. Yeah, really, it's it's an engaging chapter. And and that leads into your fourth and last chapter, of course, uh, which is titled The Fall of uh, Hua Guofeng. Uh, which begins uh, with an introductory section called Return of the Old Comrades and, and involves the story of how Deng Xiaoping outmaneuvered uh, Hua Guofeng, who was, of course, um, Mao's chosen successor. How does the factualism of the uh, whateverists and the anti-reform policies uh, fit into your analysis? So... People who have studied Chinese history, as soon as they hear the name Hua Guofeng, probably the first phrase that comes to their mind is the two whatevers. And so what was the two whatevers? Well, there was this formulation that sounded very pro-Mao, as if there was going to be no distance between what Mao had been doing uh, and what Hua Guofeng was planning to do. And it was immediately interpreted to mean things like the old guard would not see the continuing rehabilitations that had begun uh, before Mao's death. and that. Uh, you know, the real problems that had been created during um, the late Mao era would be disregarded. And we now know that that was a fundamental misunderstanding of what that term was meant to indicate. And that ultimately what the motivation was, we are going to move away from Mao in practice. But in order to maintain stability within the party, we need to still raise his banner high. Right. And this is interesting for a lot of reasons. But one is that, you know, we always criticize people on the outside of Chinese politics for getting Chinese politics wrong. But this is a very revealing case of lots of people, even within the party, getting it wrong. Right. So later on, um, uh, but like in terms of the two whatevers, one thing that's very important is that when they appeared, Deng Xiaoping was already being rehabilitated. Right. And a lot of the elements of reform and opening that are attributed to Deng, we now know were actually started by Hua Guofeng. Right. Uh, so why and the actions that he was doing really clearly show that he was not a whateverist, right? Uh, and he, in fact, moved away from, from using that term almost as soon as it had, as it had appeared. But later on, um, Hua was accused of leading this sort of faction of whateverists. But as you see in the chapter, there's all this, you know, um, evidence from people who knew better saying that there was never any, you know, faction. And, uh, there was, you know, of course, this, distrust and fear of those younger individuals who had been promoted very rapidly uh, during um, the cultural cultural revolution because there was skepticism about you know whether they were still loyal to those days 
um, a, a sense that they didn't deserve to be promoted in that way because of what they hadn't done um, uh, during the revolution. But they weren't acting in concert with each other. They weren't united by a policy platform. And in fact, many of them felt a real loyalty to the old guard precisely because this is how this kind of system works. Right. Uh, so the idea that this, these were these, you know, coherent competing uh, policy platforms uh, at open war with each other within the party is just not a correct uh, assessment of what was going on at the time. Yeah. You know, one other thing, and I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, this chapter also notes um, how your current research uh, challenges the uh, consensually accepted oversimplifications and in some cases, as you put it, fabrications of events during this uh, episode or period. So your, your key chapter uh, here looms large in, in a number of ways, but also in terms of its importance, in terms of your theory and how it sets the scholarship straight. Can, can you unpack a, a bit of that for us here? Yeah. So Again, one of the other most famous sort of things that people would learn about when looking at the era of Hua Bofeng is the so-called third plenum, right? And if you ask somebody about the third plenum uh, of 1978, they will say, oh, that's when Deng Xiaoping started uh, reform and opening and defeated uh, uh, Mao's successor, Hua Bofeng, who was, you know, conservative or radical or, you know, whatever kind of terminology you want to use. And that uh, this third plenum was one of the very few cases of um, inter-party democracy, elite revolt, forcing the top leadership onto a new um, trajectory because of policy failures, right? So that's interesting for several reasons, in the sense that if that's how you believe the party actually behaved at that particular time, then for those political scientists who say that Deng was an institutionalizer, that inter-party democracy existed, then you could point to that sort of as an example and uh, you could also say that, well, you know, if Xi Jinping really screws up, maybe there will be another third plenum. Maybe there will be another elite revolt. Now, unfortunately, both for political scientists who draw upon this case for their theorizing and for people who look to the third plenum in hopes that something like that will happen again to how Xi Jinping would be disappointed to see what the actual evidence, the new evidence says uh, about this particular event, which was that it wasn't really so much a shift in policies as a shift in authority structures. Right. Uh, I'm quoting here Han Gang, uh, who, who used this explicit phrase, uh, who is one of China's absolute top historians of this era. And I also want to say, as an aside, you use the, the expression translator. And I want to say that uh, it's a work of political science and history, but to a really uh, sort of dramatic extent, it's also a work of translation because I'm drawing upon these PRC historians who, uh, you know, I would not be able to do the work that I do without without um, the work that they were producing. And so why does he say right. that? Yeah. Why does he say that? Well, uh, he says that because there weren't really any policy difference between Deng Xiaoping and Hua Guofeng on the eve of the third plenum. And in fact, what people were complaining about primarily at the third plenum was that the rehabilitation process wasn't moving quickly enough. And that's not because Hua opposed it. It's because it was really, really, really hard. Right. And so the um, and, and also, I, I don't think that those individuals would have you know, acted in that way if they hadn't at least, you know, primarily been targeting what they were saying against uh, a man named Wang Dongxing, right, who was seen as sort of the real um, criminal in terms of, uh, you know, the, the things that, that they were concerned about. Now, there there was a hit to Hua Guofeng's authority, um, certainly, because there was a sense that, um, you know, this this meeting had gone in a direction that wasn't originally planned. But we should also keep in mind that a lot of people were very, very happy with, Hua, with how Hua performed. And so 
we have this very, very interesting quote that I have in the book where Hu Yaobang goes home and he says that there was a break in the hole of the dike in terms of moving forward. And he didn't credit Deng for it. He credited Hua for it. Right. So uh, in that sense, you know, Hua was, did not see a sort of fatal defeat of his authority at this meeting, although it was certainly you know, an important water, it was a, is a watershed moment for him. Uh, but but these, these um, you know, new claims about the third plenum that uh, I make and Tevis and Sun make and these Chinese historians make that haven't quite gotten into the sort of consensus historiography yet, as I said, really change, I think, how we should think about uh, how the CCP works, not in terms of just what happened in the past, but in terms of continuities of, you know, how how dominant leaders are, how little policy differences often matter and, and that sort of thing. Yes. You opened with that chapter. Uh, cult theory, and you lay out your hypotheses, and then you use those throughout uh, your cases, which is it's really nice and refreshing to to be able to um, I don't know, to meet up with those to go through your analysis, and then also to give you credit, as we we're just saying, for all the efforts uh, translation wise. So uh, really, um, hats off to you on that, and. The conclusion covers some interesting ground as you put out some implications for the Soviet Union, for China, and then you move on to to that section, post-strongman transitions in comparative perspective. I think that's an interesting section. Uh, uh, You've got your subsections on Trotsky and Kim Jong-il, and uh, then you move on to uh, a subsection on foreign policy applications. And finally, a lessons and future directions section. And I, I realize you know, there's not much of a question in all that, but w- what would you like to leave listeners here with in terms of a kind of a, a parting shot to connect with your thoughts previously? So we have leaders in both the Russian Federation and People's Republic of China who see different versions of their history as challenging to regime stability. So it's not easy to do research on Russia and China. At the same time, there were several years of really extraordinary openness in those countries that have created a lot of evidence to allow us to better understand what was going on in the past. And the distance between what we can do with that material, which is still available, uh, and what has been being done with it, I think, is uh, is quite big. And as Russia and China continue to be such big challenges for the United States, uh, I really think it's necessary for people to work together and be cooperative about you know sharing what these sources are and, and what they can help us do. Because as uh, as my book shows, it's really, 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 really hard to get a sense for what's actually going on within these regimes at the time. And a lot of people got it wrong when they were trying to do it in the past. But to sort of tie it all the way back into how we started, one of the reasons I do this work is because when I interacted with Roderick McFarquhar, uh, he may not have been reading the People's Daily as closely as every other person at the time, but his sort of way of, of situating things and contextualizing things because of his command of history made it feel to me that that kind of approach uh, was, was, was a very useful one. Well, thanks so much, Joseph. Your book draws on so many primary and secondary sources. Do you have a, a few book recommendations uh, for listeners interested in complementing 
your thesis on elite politics in China and Russia more broadly. I'll, of course, uh, put the links uh, to your papers in the uh, in the blog on the on the web page. But do, do you have something that, that you could um, point uh, people to? So for how I think about the nitty gritty empirics of my research, I would recommend Robert Caro's book, Working. Uh, my favorite book on the Soviet Union is Stalin and the Bomb by David Holloway. Uh, I would say in terms of Chinese elite politics, people at some point should read everything by Tevis and Sun. But if they speak Chinese, I recommend this multi-volume set published by Chinese University of Hong Kong called the which is um, all of the PRC sort of top scholars for different eras who wrote several hundred page books on all of these really key events. Uh, and for comparative Russia-China, I really like um, Theda Skotchpol's book uh, on the uh, French, uh, Russian and Chinese uh, revolutions, which uh, I start off my class on China and Russia, which uh, coincidentally will happen um, this uh, coming Tuesday. Uh, to show, uh, you know, meaningful ways of uh, how to do um, uh, comparison. Nice. And finally, uh, the start of your final paragraph of your acknowledgments begins, necessarily, all work on elite politics in closed regimes can only be considered the most recent draft. So once again, I feel like nicely put, just like your book recommendations there. And and so I, I want to ask, Hey, what are you working on uh, these days? So I have a contract with Stanford University Press that is a biography of Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun. Mm. Uh, and I'm also uh, moving forward on a couple projects related to nuclear weapons in China and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Wow, good for you. And sounds interesting. Professor Joseph Turigian, thanks for sharing your expertise with us in this interview and the engaging revisionist history of your new book, Prestige, Manipulation and Coercion, Elite Power, Struggles in the Soviet Union in China after Stalin and Mao, published this year by Yale University Press. Thanks a lot, Joseph. Thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. Take care, man. Yep. Take care, Keith.